0: Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis, Tennessee. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm Scott Walters, rector of Calvary Church, and we're speaking today with poet and essayist Molly McCully Brown. Her poetry collection, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble Minded, won the 2016 Lexi Rydnitsky First Book Prize and was named a New York Times Critics Top Book of 2017. Reviewer Dwight Garner described it as part history lesson, part seance, part ode to dread. It is beautiful and devastating. Molly lives in Gambier, Ohio, where she teaches at Kenyon College and is the Kenyon Review Fellow in Poetry. She has two books to be released in the next few weeks, I think. A book of essays titled Places I've Taken My Body, Body and In the Field Between Us, a collection of poems co-written with Susanna Nevinson. Molly, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So good to be here. Um, I mentioned those hip to the liturgical calendar will note that I mentioned the Lenten preaching edition here. It's not Lent. It may feel that way. Happy Easter.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. You too. It's
0: been a long Lent, but Molly was uh, scheduled to preach at our nearly 100-year-old Lenten preaching series until... The world got canceled with COVID. It did. So uh, full disclosure, Molly is in Virginia and I am in my attic in Memphis and we're doing this over Zoom, which everyone has become experts in in the last few weeks.
1: Yes, coming to you through the magic of video conferencing technology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right, exactly. Well to start off, how are you these days? Um, Everyone's going to know where you are doing your physical distancing and all the rest?
1: Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm in um, Sweet Briar, Virginia, which is the place that I grew up. um, And I'm feeling really lucky to to be uh, here with family and to know that the people I love are safe and well. And lucky too, to be in a place where um, there's lots of, of, outside space that is available and we're kind of dead in the middle of spring here and it's incredibly green and um the flowers are still blooming they haven't sort of quite quite given up yet and it's i gotta say it's a real comfort to know that even in these really brutal times there are still things blooming
0: absolutely gosh it's the same is true in memphis this has got to be one of those cool gorgeous springs on record so grace to be found in the midst of all of it absolutely so your home there is quite close to the Virginia state colony for epileptics and feeble-minded, as was the old name of it, yes. Mm-hmm. This is close to the home where you grew up. I'd love, as we wander into this conversation, for you maybe to read the opening poem in that book or a section of it.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to read the opening poem and maybe tell you a little bit about, about the, the history of the colony and, and what it was. This is called the Central Virginia Training Center formerly the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. Whatever it is, home or hospital, graveyard or asylum, government facility, or great tract of land slowly seeding itself back to dust, its church is a low-slung brick box with a single window, a white piece of plywood labeled chapel, and a locked door. Whatever it is, my mother and I ride along its red roads in February with the windows down. This place looks lived in. That one has stiff gray curtains in the window, a roof caving in. We see a small group moving in the channel between one building and the next, bowing in an absent wind. He is in a wheelchair. She is stumbling, pushing a pram from decades ago, coal black, and wrong. There is no way it holds a baby. Behind them, a few more shuffling bodies in coats. I am my own kind of damage. there looking out the right-hand window, spastic, palsied and off-balance. I'm taking crooked notes about this place. It is the land where he is buried, the place she spent her whole life, the room where they made it impossible for her to have children. It is the colony where he did not learn to read but did paint every single slat of fence you see that shade of yellow. The place she didn't wanna leave when she finally could because she'd lived there 50 years and couldn't drive a car or remember the outside or trust anyone to touch her gently. And by some accident of luck or grace, some window less than half a century wide, it is my backyard, but not what happened to my body.
0: Beautiful. I haven't mentioned to anyone here, many of your readers will know why you closed that way.
1: It makes sense maybe uh, to explain the closing to first tell you a little bit about what the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded is and was. Um, And the thing you need to know is that it was a real place um, and that in the early and mid 1900s, it was one of the major hubs of the American eugenics movement. And so what this means is that from about 19. 15 to about 1955, thousands of people who either had or were, for a variety of reasons, perceived to have um, a whole host of physical and mental and neurological disabilities, were forcibly committed to this government-run hospital and forcibly sterilized there, not only without their consent, but mostly without their knowledge. They were told that they were being sterilized and were given appendectomies instead. And some of them were then released back into the general population, and some of them spent huge swaths of their lives as what at the time they called colony inmates. And it's a really it's, it's an outlier um, in terms of these facilities that, that were major eugenicist institutions because for a very long time afterwards, it was still a functioning residential hospital um, for adults and children with very serious disabilities. The last sterilizations were noted in colony records for the mid-1950s, um, but the, the facility has continued caring for and being home um, to individuals up until actually as recently as a couple of weeks ago, the very last colony resident was was transferred um, out of what is now called the Central Virginia Training Center uh, earlier this month. Um, and it was like 109 years after the facility's opening. And as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I grew up not very far from the grounds of this facility. Um, and I have a neurological disorder called cerebral palsy, which uh, affects my balance and my muscle tone um, and my gait and my hands and and all kinds of things. And essentially what I I, uh, sort of discovered and and came to to think about and confront as I was getting interested in the the history of the place that I was raised and in particular the history of of this institution is that, you know, if I'd been born in the same part of the world, not all that many years earlier, um, I might've been a prime candidate to be a colony patient. Um, And that um, even though the, the majority of the book um, isn't set in the present tense, it's set in the, the, the 1930s, at the height of the sterilization movement, in the voices of imagined patients and staff. My awareness of my own both geographic but also kind of experiential proximity to this, to this place is really something that, that, that animates the, the whole collection.
0: Absolutely. I saw your Facebook post recently about the closing. Did you take the photographs?
1: I did. Yeah, I I went and as I as I said they 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 transferred the last the last resident um just a little while ago and I wanted to go back and and um spend some time on on the grounds of the the center which I'd done a lot when I was researching the book initially but hadn't hadn't been to in a few years and so I I just just spent a few um, hours walking around there. Um, I will say that it was, it was, I went with my father who I'm in social isolation with and no one else was there. So we were not breaking, um, breaking any distancing protocols in that way. Although I think probably we were not explicitly welcome, uh, on these grounds. So maybe in that way, we were still actually a little bit breaking, breaking some rules.
0: Yeah. Well, there are rules that ought to be broken. Yeah. Uh, So that's that they're, they're beautiful photographs. Um, and I was going back and reading Dwight Garner's review just this morning of your first book and he actually mentioned James Agee and Walker Evans and let us now praise famous men. Yeah. And that was there were no photographs of with your book but when I saw the photographs in your posts and the vivid images of these uh, individuals that you've kind of conjured for us in the book it it really made sense what he was what he was doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are no photographs you did. I did, as you're referencing, I did take some um, on this, this most recent visit because I wanted to have a record because it seems pretty clear to me that it's likely that, that all of those buildings will get torn down, you know, um, when the, when the land gets, gets repurposed for, for whatever is going to happen on it and to it next. Um, And so I wanted, I wanted to, to have some kind of visual record of, of that space. It's a strange, it's a strange space because, because like a lot of things in the rural South, um, it's just was built on an enormous amount of land. They, they, they haven't, even though it's it's been a contemporary facility for years and they've obviously built new buildings, they haven't torn down any of the original buildings. They've just sort of built new buildings next to them. <laughs> um, and so it's a strange combination of this kind of ghost town of what it once was um, and this this contemporary functioning operation. And so I wanted to have a kind of visual record of that, but even though there aren't, there aren't photographs, um, in the, the colony, the collection, it, it, it does have a very, it has to the extent that it can, a, a kind of very documentary impulse behind it. Um, and while, while all the, 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 the figures in the book are, are technically imagined and that they're not based off, um, you know, exact and specific real people. Um, there was a lot of research that, that went into the book and it, um, it is very aware at all times that this is a, a real place and a real moment in history that, that it's writing about.
0: Yeah. It, it trusted it, it even more into the present. Uh, I loved the wheelchair, uh, the, the pram from decades ago that is, that is wrong. Uh, the yeah. specifics of people that was a, that was one of the few images from the present, right?
1: yeah it's it is, in fact, really the only poem in the book that is set sort of entirely and explicitly in the in the present tense. Um. right.
0: Well, it was startling to me to think of someone still living there, um, especially it dwindling down to just a few.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a kind of amazing thing to to think about, um, especially right now. Somehow, I think when we're all feeling so acutely the sort of pressures of of isolation and of of being uh, of being one of only a few in a space and of needing to, to only be one of a few in a, in a space.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Another poem in here that struck me deeply as a pastor. Is there's a poem, a prayer for the wretched among us,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: about a preacher or a pastor who's uh, asked to go back into this place and minister to these folks? And do you mind reading that one?
1: Sure. Um, maybe I'll talk a little bit first. the this The structure of the book. The book is set. Um, other than that first poem that we read, it's set in the. Um, in the 1930s, um, at the height of, of the sterilization movement, and all of the poems are in the voices of imagined patients and staff at um, this colony, and the bulk of the poems are um, are from the point of view of, of colony patients, colony inmates, but there are a handful of poems like this one that are that are from the point of view of colony staff. and, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that choice, um, but but first all, I'll will I'll read it to you guys. It's called Prayer for the Wretched Among Us." One. Always, they tell you to go where God calls you. What they don't say is that sometimes God will call you to the wilderness, gesture toward the trees, and then hang back and wave you on alone. This is how I wound up granting absolution to low-grade idiots and the worn-out women who turn them over in bed at night and at dawn go home to their own families. Try not to think of ghosts wasting away in this world. Two. You are not supposed to be afraid of sinners. You should take your shoes off and give them to the wretched and the damned. Hold out your hand to every girl, even if she seems more animal, statue, or remnant of plague than lost disciple. But do the children of God really lose their eyes in the backs of their heads and swallow their own tongues in church? Three. I should think of her as an infant, a baby who is saved, although she cannot say God's name or even understand it, but her knees drawn up in the wash-tub tower past her chin, I pour holy water from a chipped blue pitcher cannot call up a prayer four I'm glad for the twenty miles I drive over the mountains each week for the latched red gate at the mouth of Colony Road. For the gloves I wear on days I have to give last rites in the infirmary. My wife is pregnant. I am looking into the mouth of a nightmare. Driving home in the dark, I beg forgiveness. and louder for protection and the distance to forget.
0: You're right to point out that that comes out later after we've built up individual after individual who's experienced what's actually going on in there. This is a, a staff person's Looking back in on the horror of what it is, and dealing with his own discomfort and guilt and dread, and it was a bit of me probably putting myself in his place. Yeah, uh, that drew me to that. So, yeah, say something about the, the interplay between the different perspectives and how they come together.
1: So, as I said, the majority of the poems in the book are from are from the point of view of colony patients, and and that felt important to me um, because that was the that was the perspective and the experience that I wanted to, to kind of, to put center stage. Right. You know, I'm really, I'm always uncomfortable with the notion of giving voice to the voiceless, because of course the fact is these people, like they did have a voice and they, and they, they did have things to say. Um, It's most that no one cares to hear them, but I, but I wanted to kind of highlight that experience and highlight the, the real absence and loss that exists because no one, no one cared about the perspectives of these, these people and believed that they were whole complete people with, with, rich inner lives and um, valuable contributions to make to the world. But the other thing I wanted to do, I think it's really easy to look on moments in history or on atrocities of the past and to think, oh, that is something that was perpetrated by monsters, right? And it it occurred in a time that is very distant from now and it could never occur now. And the people who allowed for it to occur are people who are nothing like me, right? And who bear no resemblance to me or to anyone I love. And in fact, the truth is often so much more complicated than that, right? And the truth is that so many of these Great atrocities, and certainly um, what allowed for the kind of rise of eugenics and of facilities like the like the colony here was misinformation and fear, right? Like a real misunderstanding of, of, of all kinds of things, um, not just about science and genetics, um, but about the value of human life and also a real fear that, that, um, that there wasn't going to be enough, right? There wasn't going to be enough in the world or that somehow this kind of damage was was going to, was going to spread and, and, um, in fact you know, people that, that, that you loved and, and the people um, perpetrating these atrocities weren't people who thought of themselves as evil. They were, they were people who thought of themselves as afraid and protecting themselves. And, um, and I wanted to look at that perspective, um, both to lend complexity to those figures, but also mostly to problematize the idea that, that this was something so deeply distant from our present um, and occurring in a space that, that, that doesn't look like our own, because in fact, I think the proximity of it is, you know, really present and really frightening. Not just in terms of it wasn't all that many years ago, but also in terms of the forces that allowed for it to happen are still forces that are 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 widely and wildly at work in the world today.
0: Yeah, that's. That, I think it's poignant to realize these visceral responses we have to one another. We construct our systems on top of those. We don't believe we. By the time the system gets constructed, whether it's eugenics or some modern economy. Um, we're convinced that it has this objective kind of reality of its own. When we have to drill down in our own res- visceral responses to the world to see where it began.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so easy to to look back and to think, okay, like what are all of the things that that so many of these things that now seem you know unfathomable and violent and objectionable have in common? And, and we we look back and we think like, oh, it was about trying to find an other on which you could blame all of your problems and displace all of your fear and and locate all of your worry. Um, because if you could do that, if you could find someone who was unlike you um, on which to unload those burdens, then you wouldn't have to carry them around anymore, right? And none of it would have to be your own fault. And that is, um, you know, however much we've moved away from particular moments in history, that is not a tendency that we have, have uh, managed to, to leave behind us.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. We had James Allison here uh, for Lenten Preaching who writes a lot about Rene Girard and the whole scapegoat, that that desperate need to have this be someone else's problem.
1: Yeah, someone else's fault.
0: So related to this, at least in my reading, if we could touch on your faith, I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition. I grew up in a more evangelical tradition.
1: Yeah.
0: I think you grew up not going to church a lot and found yourself in a liturgical tradition. yeah. Um, one of the things pertinent to this conversation, to me at least, is that these traditions involve our bodies. There is mm-hmm. a whole deep intellectual, for better and for worse, um, heritage and, and theology and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But there's this instinct that actually what we do with our bodies matters too and might be maybe where some of these desires and affections are shaped and formed. Yeah. Could you say something about your your attraction to the Catholic faith, and if it has anything to do with this other conversation that we're talking about?
1: Oh well, I think it. I mean, I think it absolutely does. It does have to do with the kind of um, the 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 prevalence and the the inescapability of the of the body and of and of of like physical sensation and material existence in general. Um, I think one of the things about growing up with a relatively significant physical disability um, is that you learn from a very early age, because this is the way that the medical model works in America, right? That that there are things about your physical body that are wrong with you, right? And those are things that to the extent that it is possible, sort of every adult and every perf- medical professional around you is going to work to to change and correct, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think from a very early Age had this conception of my body as a thing that was broken and incorrect um, and like aberrant somehow that needed to be made better um, to the extent that it could be, so as to to serve me better and to be in the world more effectively, and that also would forever be incapable of being fully corrected, right? That there was no... That every attempt that... You know, every surgery I had, every orthopedic intervention um, that happened was was a sort of a mortal person's best attempt to correct a thing that was ultimately going to be like deeply and desperately uncorrectable. And that's really a complicated... That's a complicated circumstance. And, you know, there are a lot of things that I, I owe to medical professionals and to doctors, right? Like many of the surgeries... Um, that I had as a child um, were, you know, have, have been really positive in all kinds of ways for my mobility and my quality of life. And I, it's not, so it's not that I think like, oh God, everything about that was, was incredibly damaging, you know, but I do, I do think that it, it messes with you in some ways to, to understand that about yourself from the earliest moments and to have that be your initial language for thinking about your selfhood and your body. And I think a lot of my adult life and a lot of my sort of Trying to to come to terms with a relationship to, to my body and to the physical realities of my life was about trying to find ways to to complicate that understanding, if not to correct it entirely then to then to at least have a, a more nuanced understanding. Because the truth is that my body, as much as it is a source of pain and a source of things that it cannot do, and a source of, of difficulty and conflicts it's also the thing that allows me to be in the world right and to and to be in contact with the people i love and to do all of the things that i do and it's the thing that's made me the the writer that i am you know and given me that experience in the world and so i think you know a lot of what appealed to me about the catholic church was also the thing that in some ways was the most difficult to wrap my head around which was this idea that like this is not a tradition in which you know, being a holy person is about sort of like escaping your body and escaping the the desires and the limits of your flesh. And it's not a tradition where you die and your body is this thing that's just useless and, and, you know, is nothingness and the the truth of who you are is somehow abstracted from your physical form. In fact, Catholicism insists on the opposite, right? Um, Which is it insists on this tradition where you actually, the thing we're all going to that's going to happen to all of us is that we're going to be delivered back into our physical forms, right? And that the physical world, um, and, and what we do in our bodies is, is the site of meaning, the site of the divine, the site of, of what matters most. Um, and that we're all in, in bodies that were, that are our vehicles rather than cages, right? And that is obviously a really complicated thing to wrap your head around. If you're someone, you know, who's been, in the business of, of trying to correct and escape their body for as long as, as they've been alive. But it's also really freeing and empowering in a certain kind of way, right? Because it suggests, no, this isn't some, this isn't some mistake. This isn't some punishment. This isn't something to be transcended. This is, this is, this is the vehicle, right? This is the, this is the material. And this is the way I am, not just as, not just as a person in the world, but as a, as a soul and as a being and it, and it matters. And that's really, that's i think been really powerful in my life and it's it's given me a kind of again i wouldn't exactly say a corrective but it's been, it's given me a complement to all these other ways of of thinking about of thinking about my body and of thinking about what it is and what it does or doesn't do
0: yeah that's fascinating because to be in a body is to be limited full stop
1: yeah necessarily right like that's to be a physical person is to, is to be subject to to limits and
0: you mentioned you you write powerfully about pain itself physical pain, we have to deal with that in our lives. But there's also this pain of of a kind of alienation. We touched on it before. I mentioned before that my mother spent many years in the chair and so I became, as an adolescent, I would watch my dad try to get her into places that were not made for her.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: And I was walking around in a city once and I looked at the buildings, and I thought, well, if everybody else could fly, they'd probably put put the doors on the roofs of these. And it would be unavailable to me. Right. Nobody feels sorry for me that I can't fly. Because the world hasn't been constructed for flyers, right? And and so there's a piece of it that also has to do with what is my whether it's the built environment or the religious environment. We were going to have to construct. We were going to. We had. We were going to put up a um, uh, a ramp to get you up the Calvary Chancel because this old building was not made for someone who gets around on a chair, right? So so that's a piece of it that's that's uh, been fascinating. That I it feels like it could, it could translate into so many ways. Who is excluded for reasons we didn't notice because we only talked to people who moved this way or thought this way Right, made these assumptions?
1: Absolutely. And this, you know, so there are essentially, there are two, and and I'm about to give a a really uh, broad strokes and uh, probably in some ways profoundly incorrect summation of this theory and actual disability studies scholars will listen in and be like, what are you talking about? Um, but here are, the, here are the broad strokes, which is that there are, t- there are kind of two primary models for thinking about sort of disability and its positioning and its, and its margins and origins. And, and one of them is the, is the model that, that I just spent a minute talking about, right? Which is the medical model, which suggests that disability is something that's inherent to the body, Or brain of an individual, um, and that it's something that we we should and can and must, um, to the extent that's possible, correct um, so that it falls more in line with what we consider normalcy, right? Normalcy of the body, normalcy of the brain. Um, And the other model of disability is called the social model of disability, Um, and what it suggests is that the condition of being disabled, that is unable to do something, is not something that's inherent to a body or a particular individual. It's something that's inherent to a world, right? So we are not disabled because of something in our body. We're disabled because the world that we are living in is not set up to allow us access, right? It has not been constructed to, and so and so, the disability is an, is an artifact, not of some intrinsic wrongness in a person or a body, but of a constructed wrongness in the world, right? Um, and that's, I think, a really powerful thing to think about. And I think it's really powerful to think about the facts that When we make choices or do things that maybe we're not even aware of as being conscious choices about how we construct the environments that we are a part of. And the, and by that, I mean physical environments, right? How am I building this building? How am I, you know, where am I choosing to hold this event? Uh, how am I constructing this physical thing? But also, you know, what kind of intellectual environment am I setting up? What kind of political environment am I setting up? What am I prioritizing here? What kinds of voices am I imagining are going to be the voices that are going to be heard? And what am I you know, what voices am I, am, I, am I not thinking about? When we make those choices, every one of those choices is a, is, it's a political act, it's a social act, and it's an act that either makes more expansive uh, or makes more exclusionary the communities that we're constructing and being a part of.
0: Right. Can we learn who has the power and who has the gatekeeper? Who's the gatekeeper?
1: Absolutely. Right. And like, how big is the gate? Or like, does there need to be one at all?
0: Yeah, that's right. I was struck in your story when you did... Come into the Catholic Church. The barriers remain, but you are welcome to cross them. It it struck me that there will probably always be this need for hospitality. That these barriers exist, and someone says you have permission to be here, even if the whole tradition is not going to shift and um, stop kneeling or stop whatever the things are that feel like a a barrier to someone coming in.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, it's you know, we can believe, and and I certainly believe, you know, that the um, that divine, divine revelation is, is perfect and flawless, but our human understanding of that and our human exercising of that is, I think, you know, an an eternally in, in development thing. And we're, and it's, and it's absolutely subject to, to inescapable human flaw. And so, you know, my hope is that eventually in all kinds of ways in our, in our world, um, in our, in our faith traditions, in our, in our intellectual communities, eventually that hospitality in that way, won't be necessary because we will have actually done the we will have done the 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 hard and daily and conscious work um, of of deconstructing those boundaries and of reimagining what what access and inclusion actually look like and what are the things we value most. And I think as you know, as people of faith, I mean, I think so much about you know so much of um, of being a person of faith is is remembering to to do things intentionally, right? And remembering to do things in a repeated way and remembering to attend to even things that feel quiet or difficult, or like it would be easy to just be like, you know, and I don't have time for that right now, right? And in fact, like that that exercise um, in rigor and practice and attention and repetition, that's, that's also the exercise by which uh, political change happens, right?
0: Yeah. Do you have a practice of prayer?
1: You know, I am sometimes more, I'm sometimes more attentive to that than, than at other times. I, you know, I'm going to be really honest about my own flaws as a, as a person. Um, and, about, and about the, you know, I think I'm someone for whom sometimes I feel really, really in touch with and really attuned to that part of my life. And it feels really valuable. And I feel, I feel very much like, yeah, this is, this is, feels really you know, I really, I really believe the things that I believe because I, I believe them and I'm, I'm feeling them right now. And that feels very present. And sometimes it feels like a thing I'm doing mostly out of muscle memory when I remember to do it as a way of trying to kind of convince myself back into that space. Poetry helps me in those moments um, when it feels hard. And in some ways poetry feels sort of like a, a bridge in the middle distance between um, the, the sort of regular daily life that I'm living and uh, trying to be more attuned to a, a kind of spiritual practice you know i can i can come to a poem i can come to a poem and i can come to the repetition of a poem um even when even when coming toward coming toward the divine or coming toward uh sort of in uh intentional self aware prayer feels feels like an impossibility and and i feel like if, you know sometimes you feel like a fraud doing it sometimes you're doing it and you're like yes this is absolutely a transcendent and wonderful thing and sometimes you're doing it and you're thinking like what okay why am i talking to my bedroom wall what is happening here you know yeah
0: Hopefully, God listens to frauds, or else we're all doomed.
1: Yeah, let's hope so, God, Lord. Otherwise, (laughs)
0: Um, I'd love you to um, talk a little bit about poems coming up. Susanna Nevison's a friend of yours. How did that relationship start?
1: She is so. Susanna um, Nevison is another is another poet, and she actually won the same first book prize um, that I won a couple of years before I did. And so, even before I knew her, um, I knew of her first collection. Which is a, a really incredible and beautiful book called Teratology. Um, and Teratology, it's worth noting, is a word that means both the study of of birth defects and also the study of monsters and monstrosity. And Susanna was um, born with a, a series of of birth defects in her legs and feet that required a lot of ch- have required a lot of of childhood and um, and and adult surgical intervention. Um, and so, like me, um, has this kind of not only a sustained experience of, of disability, but a sustained experience of like ongoing medical intervention, um, beginning very early in one's life. Um, and, and one of the sort of earliest that we finally met, um, after, after I had I'd known her work for a little while, we finally met at a, um, at a, a summer writers conference the swanee summer writers conference which is basically like summer camp for adults where you um go talk about poems for two and a half weeks and drink a lot of wine um and it was it was it was lovely to to finally meet her um and i think we both felt a kind of immediate kinship um born out of the fact that we were both poets um but also that we we, we had these kind of twin experiences um of of disability and of of surgical intervention and one of the things that we, we both talked about is the fact that neither one of us has any memory of being in our body before it had been surgically altered. So neither one of us has any memory of being in, in bodies that are kind of un, unaltered or un, unbreached in any way. And, and for both of us, our earliest concrete memories are memories of of hospital settings and of surgical intervention. And we we ended up talking a lot um, in those early weeks um, about the just the the consequences of that and the ways in which we felt like it it was still at play in our lives um, and our ongoing experiences of navigating the world as um, as adults with disabilities and and one of the things that we ended up sort of discovering and finding is that you know there was a really sort of instantaneous and easy intimacy to our relationship that was born out of not only sharing those experiences, but out of feeling like for the first time in some ways, when we were speaking to each other um, about these things and and even about other things in our lives, we were doing so in a way that did not require any translation. Um, We weren't explaining anything to anyone else. We weren't having to render our experiences in language that would be comprehensible um, to someone for whom they were foreign. Um, and we were just sort of, it was, it was a little like discovering that even though you didn't know it, you were actually like a small alien your whole life, uh, who was just mildly different than, than everyone else. And all of a sudden being like, oh my God, there's another small alien. Where have you, where have you been? And we, um, you know, and for, for, for a long time in our relationship, that was just sort of a wonderful source of, of pleasure and camaraderie and connection and community. And, but eventually because we're, we're both writers, um, and because we were, uh avoiding other projects that we were supposed to be doing at the time we thought wouldn't it be really interesting if we tried to write a book and we tried to write a book of poems in which we we continued in that language right and we wrote a book of poems in which we didn't do any translation um and we were just speaking directly to one another about this space um of 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 disability of of surgical intervention of living in a body that has is always changed and always changeable and of the kind of the 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 violence and difficulty and loneliness and also like strange potentials for transformation that are inherent um, in that space and so in the field between us is the book of poems that arose and the poems are literally letters that we wrote um, to one another um, in which we kind of wrote ourselves into this imagined universe um, where we were we were kind of wandering through the wilderness together um, grappling grappling with this with these questions Um, and it's really it feels kind of remarkable to us that this thing we started in our email um, just because we thought it would be fun is now like, you know, uh, about a month from being a book in the world.
0: They're beautiful poems, um, and I hope people will go out and buy it. Um, I'm, the sub, the sections, it's clear that you're moving from the aftermath backward toward recovery, operating room, pre-op holding. So there's this this structure, this skeleton maybe mm-hmm. backward in time. But the poems themselves don't necessarily. There are two people reaching out to one another across this this field, I guess, um, yeah. with their experiences, and, and I've i found it very easy to enter that reaching toward what, to each other um, as someone with other experiences. Uh, it's beautiful how concrete they were, and yet to your experiences, and yet maybe the gate was open. You were. Referring to early earlier, yeah.
1: Thank you. I mean, that's really it's it's gratifying to hear, and it's been really gratifying um, to you know, we weren't sure for a long time. We weren't sure, like, are, you know, are these are these poems going to be meaningful to anyone who isn't us, right? Like, are they going to matter um, or even be comprehensible? um to, to people who, who aren't us and who aren't inside this internal universe and it's been really as the as sort of early copies of the book it's not technically out for another month but but we have copies that are, are sort of winging their way quietly into the world and as it's it started to make its way toward readers it's been immensely gratifying um to hear other people say that they they are able to kind of enter into this world and that the that the intimacy of it and the the exchange of it is is a is a um a space that feels that feels meaningful and, and open to them as well. And you know, I think it makes me feel good about how how expansive um this space can be even within these these very particular constraints. And so that's really been lovely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is there is there a short one you might like to offer to give people a, a sense of what this book is like?
1: Yeah. Um so maybe I'll read I feel like if I'm gonna read as I said, the poems are 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 letters and so they go back and forth. And so I feel like if I'm gonna read one, I kind of have to read two. Yeah it makes sense. Because there's such They're such pairs and it it seems really hard to to, to pick just one. And so maybe I'll read, I'll read two poems. Uh, I'll read, they're from early in the book. Scott, if you want to follow along, these are pages six and seven. Um, The poems, the poems don't have titles. um, So it's hard to, it's hard to refer to them um, too directly. Um, But these are, these are our poems from early in the book. And I think they'll give you a sense of, of, of sort of what the register of the collection is like. Dear M., Maybe it's a pronoun problem after all. Our bodies, you and me, the lot of us in search of ways to address each other when we can't ever fully turn around inside this room. When we sleep, of course we come unraveled. It's only fair. Awake, we're always pushing against another kind of self who pushes back or pulls us down or makes us stay. The kind who doesn't let us go too far, who strokes our hair, keeps us tame. When we sleep, I believe we leave some selves behind. In the morning, they stare back at me across the room. And though I look away, they always plead with me. Tell us where we've been. Dear S, today the doctor's office called to say he'd see me in November and take every photograph at once, my knees and hips and back to see what's what. And I heard, survey the damage, tell your fortune, reach right in, cast you out. And all my smaller selves, they hunkered down like children, tender in their fear, swore that they'd file down their claws and fall in line or let me loose if that was what I wanted, begged me to keep them a secret, not to hold them out there in the light. Years ago, they spent a long time in the theater, fumbling their blocking, being stretched and prodded, asked to pose, stitch together, rent apart. There are so many star charts made in their image, so many maps of how they move. But then there was this mess of wild, unwatched years. My hair grew long, my selves grew wedded to their unseen galaxy. They want no cartograph, no telescope. They want neither to know or to be known. I have been asking for an answer, a relief map. I have begged to be found out. Now some maker readies the camera, readies the compass, readies the knife. And all of me rallies to pull the curtains closed to cover my face.
0: I think all of us can, um, any of us can relate to this idea of multiple selves, make make themselves known in different settings in different situations, wanting to get out. Some of them were more, were ready to embrace. Others were, hope stay in the the back room. Really beautiful. Thank you. I hope whoever's listening rushes out and buys pre-orders that book um, because it's really beautiful. I appreciate it. We're about out of time, I think. I'm not quite sure how long we've been talking, Molly. Actually, I could go on for another hour. I'd love to hear just any reflections you might have as we close. We alluded to the fact that you and I are talking to each other in this very strange time of uh, physical distancing. And it's occurred to me that we are seeing one another as potential sources of infection which is a real challenge to offering ourselves generously to one another. Have you had any thoughts or observations from your perspective in the world as you've had to hunker down and watch the world respond as it's responded?
1: Well, it's really hard, right? Because we talked a lot early in the conversation about the the danger of seeing other people as somehow threatening or somehow dangerous, um, and the danger of of fearing particular kinds of bodies, you know. Uh, And their and their sort of capacity to 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 create problems or create damage and um, and I think all of that remains really true and those dangers are really omnipresent and also it's really hard because right now we're being told like okay you actually might be a source of danger to someone else right and you have to kind of hold both of those realities simultaneously and it's it's a real challenge and you know and I feel two things and one. One is a kind of, you know, it feels to me the things that have felt urgent about not prioritizing certain kinds of bodies or certain kinds of lives over other kinds of bodies or other kinds of lives feel increasingly urgent to me right now um, when we're living in a situation where, you know, um, people with particular kinds of skin color or with particular pre-existing conditions or with particular obvious or invisible disabilities um, are at risk for, for you know, not getting. A care that's as high quality and not. So in one way, you know, I feel the sort of exaggerated urgency of the questions that have animated so much of my work and so much of my life and, um, and that work. And I feel like it's important that we all be especially attuned to those dangers and especially clear about being a force to say that, you know, this has to change and this is not an okay way to be. And then the other thing I feel is that it, it is increasingly important and increasingly difficult to figure out ways to maintain a sense of of, of connection and meaningful, meaningful proximity, you know, and a real sense of communion with one another, um, even in this universe where we, we can't physically be in the same space. Um, and that's you know I that I have no no easy answers um, for that except and i'm I'm gonna steal shamelessly from Susanna here. We were doing a, a reading from our from our book um, a week or so ago, another virtual reading and and she was talking about how we because of the nature of our friendship um, and our artistic partnership, our whole um, incredibly close personal and working relationship um it has it's always occurred when we're not in the same place we've always been physically distant from one another and she talked a lot about feeling like you know that physical distance didn't have to mean um a lack of intimacy right or a lack of of connection and um and I think that's really powerful and I think it was really powerful for me to think back about the fact that like um we made this book we made this thing that exists beyond us um uh, from a position of 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 real of real physical physical distance and um and social isolation in a certain sense and and so this feels like a time to um to attempt to be a person who makes things in the world and makes things with other people you know um and if i have any if I have any advice, maybe it's that maybe it 's that even in this universe where it seems like all of our energy has to be devoted to you know like actively not dying and not being the force that that kills other people that actually that doesn't make creation. Less important or less possible, it makes it more important and more possible. But this is this is still a time um, when things when things not only can be beginning um, and be being born, but must necessarily be beginning. Like this is the time when when building has to happen. You
0: know? That's fantastic. Hopefully, it will result in empathy and uh, some the courage that's happening right now to see how people are reaching out across those difficult divides is heartening. If We can extend that to those who've been traditionally left out. Perhaps we can emerge as something better. I hope so. Thank you, Molly. Uh, what a gift to spend an hour here with you, hearing about your life and your work. Really grateful that you set this side of time to talk.
1: Thank you so much for, for talking with me. i was so glad to have this conversation.
0: All right. Be safe and take care. Take care, Scott. In the field between us, writes Molly McCully Brown, in the rubble of a fallen bridge, in all the weeds and dandelion down, we've made a place we didn't need to call a house to feel at home. Some days it takes a poet whose gifts and limitations happen to be different from your own to name the distance between one life and another, not as a void or a tear, but as a living blooming place where a kind of wild communion might grow. Maybe right where the bridge we thought would stand forever has gone back to being stones. We are disabled right now in ways we're not accustomed to quite yet. Handshakes and embraces and other ordinary intimacies are not available to us. We're having to find other means for crossing the space between one body and another. But it's also true that this is a time when distance can be a form of care. And we may even find that there grows in the field between us something vivid and alive that we did not make. God lives, maybe not so much down in the secret and unsearchable places of my heart, but out in the spaces between us, where two or three are gathered across six feet on a sidewalk or 6,000 miles in an unstable internet connection. Could it be that one body's desire not to be alone is still what carries us out into the sacred, weedy places where the God we hadn't actually gone there looking for is to be found? calvary podcast linton preaching edition is produced by noah glenn of perpetual motion our theme music was composed by spence bailey special thanks to robin banks director of communications at calvary and heidi rupke linton preaching series coordinator thanks to you for listening if you're curious about calvary episcopal church we are an eclectic bunch of christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of god and what it means to be human we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of Second and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.